Well, it is a pleasure to be with you here today and uh, to get to deliver the Word of God to you. I have a few of my people out there as well, and uh, so they've got to listen to this sermon again. Uh, They really needed to hear it. I want to read to you this morning from Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25, give ear to the word of the Lord. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant... I'm getting older and this print is getting smaller. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would cause it to dwell in our hearts richly, that we may glorify and honor you more fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I trust that your elders, uh, like mine, uphold the centrality and necessity of Christian education. After all, Paul commands Christian parents to bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord in Ephesians 6.4. And this means that we must give our children a rigorous, faithful, joyful, and Christ-centered education. Right, many of you adults are investing time, money, and energy in the education of your own and 
others' children. And many of you children are in the midst of yet another school year. And we can often grow discouraged in this task and wonder what it is that we are aiming to accomplish, right? So why do, I want to address this morning, why do Christian kids need a Christian education? I want to begin at the beginning, and that's why we find ourselves in the book of Genesis. The foundation of education is the imago dei, the image of God. Every human being, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, has been created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 declares, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created us in his image. And note that in this foundational text, it's, it's stated four times for emphasis. And thus, the foundational reason that we educate or disciple our children is because they have been created just like every other human being in the image of God. They have been created, therefore, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us. Right. So what does that mean, that we were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Well, first, we're created to glorify God. Consider the function of images or statues of rulers in the ancient world. Right? They were created, they were built as reminders of the ruler's might and authority. The ruler is Lord. Honor and submit to him. So I've given you a picture of one of the sphinxes uh, with the face of Hatshepsut, of uh, the likely adopted mother of Moses in your handout. Right, But the function of those images in the ancient world was to remind their subjects, honor the Lord, honor the king. And the more impressive the statue, the more impressive the ruler. And so every human being is a living image of God pointing to God's might and to his glory. Every human being, believer or unbeliever, bears God's image. We are the glory of the universe standing as beacons that declare Yahweh is Lord. Honor and submit to him. That's what every human being says to you. Now, some do it better, some do it Worse, but that is our task, to glorify God, to point to God's might and control and rule. But second, we exist to, glor- to enjoy God forever, to enjoy God forever. Right? The statues of ancient rulers, like that one of Hatshepsut, were dead and lifeless things. They were made of wood or stone or marble. But God's image bearers, are living beings. And hence God created us in covenant with Him in a relationship 
of love and fidelity, right? That's essentially what a covenant is. It's a relationship of love and fidelity. As image bearers, we were made for love and for fidelity. We were made for for relationship, right? There's a reason that hermits always go weird, right? There's a reason that that happens, right? And there's a reason why those who violate their covenants cause such desolation in their wake. We were not designed to live solitary or treacherous lives. We were designed to live in fellowship with God and with others. Your chief end is to enjoy God forever. Our twofold calling, therefore, is, as as image bearers, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Genesis 2 highlights the traits which enable us to fulfill that twofold calling. Genesis 2 reveals that God created us, God created you, with a mind, a conscience, and an imagination in order that you might fulfill your twofold calling. And so education, therefore, is the process of informing and awakening our minds, our consciences, and our imaginations that we may glorify and enjoy God more fully. That's what education is. Education is the process of informing and awakening our minds, our consciences, and our imaginations that we may glorify and enjoy God more fully. And Christian education grounds that whole process in Christ, knowing that He alone can restore in us fully the image of God. So first, God has created us as his image bearers with minds. You are a rational creature, even though sometimes you don't act like it. Uh, We are not merely material creatures. We possess both flesh and spirit, body and soul. Notice chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Right? Moses reminds us that man is the pinnacle of creation. We're not merely sophisticated animals, as Darwinism maintains, but are uniquely crafted in God's very image. Every human being, therefore, has a soul, not merely a body, has a mind, not merely a brain. There is a me that includes both body and soul. And consequently, we have the ability to think, to reason, uh, to evaluate, and to weigh evidence. Uh, Notice that in Genesis 2, we can identify those plants that are good for food. Chapter 2, verse 9. We can map the world and assess its resources in chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. We can count doing mathematics. First, there's this river. And then second, there's this river. And third, there's this one. And fourth, there's this one. 
We can categorize the creatures of the earth in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. We can recognize differences in the world in chapter 2, verse 20, when Adam recognizes that these, these animals are not for me. In other words, God gave us minds. We are rational creatures. Second, note that God not only created us with minds, He endowed us with consciences. And thus we have the ability to distinguish right from wrong, a good from evil. As human beings, we're not only rational creatures, we are moral creatures, responsible for our choices. Thus, when God places Adam in the garden, notice in chapter 2, verse 15, that God gives Adam a calling, a duty, a task to tend and to keep or guard the garden. And he forbids Adam from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Right? Both actions reveal that God created man to distinguish between good and evil. To obey God, to listen to his voice, is good. It's life and it's peace. Whereas to disobey God and to eat of the forbidden fruit is evil. It's death and destruction we have a conscience and so we know what it is to be ashamed or not chapter 2 verse 25 again we're not merely animals nor are we just chemical reactions nor bags of protoplasm nor victims of our circumstances we are moral agents we are shapers of history changers of events god gave you a conscience you are a moral creature third finally god has created us aesthetic creatures aesthetics is the study of beauty as we heard in the exhortation this morning and so note that when god creates the garden it's not merely a utilitarian haven a place of food it's also a place of beauty God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Chapter 2, verse 9. God put beauty in the world. God created us with an appreciation of beauty. Right? Not only do we think, not only do we make moral choices, we also dream and imagine We have imaginations. Hence, we're able to recognize what is not beautiful. Notice that God judges that the man alone is not good in chapter 2, verse 18. That is, it's not fitting. It doesn't go together. So God parades various animals before Adam in chapter 2, verse 19. And what happens? Well, Adam himself discerns that something is not fitting in chapter 2, verse 20. He could imagine a creature comparable to him, something lovely and beautiful, and he knew that these animals didn't fit the bill. But then God fashions the woman and brings her to Adam, and suddenly we see Adam's imagination on display, his poetic soul. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, chapter 2, verse 23. Right, notice that Adam speaks not just words, not just 
factual data, but poetry and song. God gave us imaginations. We are aesthetic creatures. So notice that to be made in the image of God, therefore, is is to have a mind, a conscience, and an imagination. So why did God give you those things, right? Why did God endow you with those traits? The answer, in part, is that these traits enable us to understand and apprehend God himself and the eternal realities that exist in him and in the world that he has made. Our minds, our consciences, and our imaginations are receptors that enable us to perceive and embrace transcendentals, right? Our minds, our consciences, and our imaginations are receptors that enable us to perceive and embrace transcendentals, the eternal realities that exist separate from our perception of them the realities that shape the world in which we live. In Western civilization, these eternal realities, these transcendentals, have often been summarized with what I have called the golden triad of truth, goodness, and beauty. Our receptors, used rightly, enable us to perceive and embrace that which is true, that which is good, and that which is beautiful. And education, again, is the process of informing and awakening our minds, our consciences, and our imaginations that we may embrace what is true and good and beautiful. So let's explore this briefly. Consider first truth. As a human being made in the image of God, you have a mind. You are a rational creature. Why has God given you a mind? In order that you might grasp the truth, that you might embrace what is true and reject what is false. Truth exists because God exists. God is truth. God announces to Moses that he is, quote, abounding in truth. Exodus 34, verse 6. And Jesus declares to the disciples, I am the truth. John 14, verse 6. Note, therefore, that truth exists whether we acknowledge it or not. Truth exists whether we acknowledge it or not. It is a transcendental. It stands over and above us. It judges our opinions and beliefs. Our opinions do not establish what is true or false. The truth establishes whether our opinions are true or false. Right? God exists whether you believe it or not. Two plus two equals four, whether you believe it or not. If you have XY chromosomes, then you are male, whether you think so or not. Truth transcends us. It exists over us. Hence, when we use our minds rightly, we do not create the truth. We discover the truth. For the truth exists independent of our minds. But God has given us minds in order that we might discern the truth and then embrace it. 
Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And therefore, we are obligated as Christians to cultivate the life of the mind. You are obligated to cultivate the life of the mind. Christianity, right according to some skeptics, requires us to shut off our brain. Right, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. But that is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is founded on the truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. Those are truth claims. You see, Christianity is not merely a set of ideas. It's a declaration of things that happened. And if those things didn't happen then Christianity is not true and you should not be here and you should not be worshiping Christ. Christianity does not denigrate the mind. Rather, it is our broader culture that does so. Right? We are bombarded by skepticism, relativism, and cynicism, by the absurd notion that whatever is true for you is true for you. Right? These beliefs have been deadening our souls and eroding our knowledge of the truth. But truth exists because God exists and God has given us minds that we might understand and grasp the truth. So cultivate the life of the mind. Think, reason, explore. That is your calling. And that is why we pursue the educational process. Consider second, goodness. As a human being, you have a conscience. You're a moral being. Why has God given you a conscience? In order that you might understand and embrace what is good and reject what is evil. Conscience is the built-in power of our minds to pass moral judgments on ourselves, approving or disapproving our actions, thoughts, and plans, and telling us if what we have done is assessed as wrong, that we deserve to suffer for it. That's what your conscience does. And it does it without your permission. Right? Your conscience enables you to grasp and embrace what is good. Goodness exists because God exists, right? Just like truth. Truth exists because God exists. Goodness exists because God exists. God announced to Moses in the same passage in which he said he's abounding in truth. He says that he is abounding in goodness. Exodus 34 verse 6. Psalm 119, verse 68, proclaims, You, O Lord, are good, and you do good. And Paul reminds us in Romans 2, 4, that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Notice, therefore, that goodness exists whether we acknowledge it or not. Goodness exists whether we acknowledge it or not. Like truth, it is a transcendental Blasphemy is wrong, whether we think so or not. Immorality is perverse, whether we think so or not. Showing respect to parents is right, whether we think so or not. God has given us a conscience in order that we might discern goodness and embrace it. We no more create goodness than we create the truth. 
things don't become wrong because we say they are wrong. They are wrong, and we come to perceive that they are so. Because God exists and God is good, therefore goodness exists, righteousness exists, independent of my choices or beliefs or opinions. God declares in the prophet Isaiah, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.20 Right, Isaiah instructs us, right, he insists that our responsibility as human beings made in the image of God is to align our perception of what is good with what is in fact good. We are to align our opinions with what is the case. Just because we think or say that something is good, that is not the measure of goodness. We are to cultivate our consciences. So how do we do that? In addition, how do we cultivate the life of the mind? First, read the Word of God. God's word is good. It defines goodness. It equips us to recognize that which is good. My tongue shall speak of your word, Psalm 119, verse 172. For all your commandments are righteousness. God's word cultivates our conscience. Second, we cultivate our conscience by studying the deeds of men and nations, right? Because God is good and is created and sustains all things, and because He's created us as human beings in His image, God has not left Himself without witness in human interchange and in history. By God's common grace, all men, believer and unbeliever, often recognize and resonate with that goodness. So, for example, read Plato. Read Aristotle, read Herodotus, read Plutarch, read Boethius, and even Suetonius. Right? Why they don't get it all right, and often they get a lot of things wrong, but because they're made in the image of God, they cannot help but get some things correct. God has been at work among the nations, leaving testimonies of His goodness. And so we can benefit and And as we study, we can benefit from these glimpses of goodness so long as they harmonize with the Word of God. It's one of the chief benefits of the study of history. We're to cultivate our conscience in order that we may embrace goodness. Finally, consider beauty. As a human being... You have an imagination. You are an aesthetic being. So why has God given you an imagination? In order that you might understand and embrace what is beautiful and lovely and shun what is ugly. Your imagination enables you to understand and embrace beauty. Beauty exists because God exists. Beauty exists because God exists. God is beautiful. Even as the exhortation, again, it's like stole my whole point. This, so I'm just going to shorten this point. Okay. But Moses teaches us to sing. Psalm 90, verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. 
David declares, as we learned this morning, that his chief desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 27.4. Notice, therefore, that beauty exists whether I acknowledge it or not. Like truth, like goodness, beauty is a transcendental. It is not in the eye of the beholder. God is beauty, and His beauty is reflected in the world that He has made. And God has given us an imagination in order that we might discern beauty and embrace it. Right? Because God exists and God is beautiful. Therefore, beauty exists. Loveliness exists independent of my choices. And our calling as humans made in the image of God is to cultivate our imaginations so that what we perceive to be beautiful and what is truly beautiful correspond. Right? So that we say that is beautiful or that is repulsive of the things that God describes that way. That's our our task. That's why we're to cultivate our imaginations. And again, we do so by reading and meditating first and foremost on the Word of God. The Word of God is beautiful, reflecting the character of the one who wrote it. The law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Psalm 19.10. We pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 37, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your word. Scripture exhorts us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 29, verse 2. Right? Holiness is beautiful. The high priest's garments were made for glory and for beauty, Exodus 28.2. And the psalmist cries out, How lovely, Lord of hosts, to me, the tabernacles of thy grace, Psalm 84, verse 1. Right? Worship is beautiful. God's word cultivates the imagination. But, as we were reminded, beauty exists in the world, in nature, in art, in literature, in history, in architecture, in mercy ministry. So consider, pray, read, sing the Psalms, meditate. Compare what you think is beautiful with what is described as beautiful in the Word of God. Cultivate your imagination, even as you cultivate your mind and your conscience. Learn to identify and appreciate what is beautiful and to shun what is foul. Elizabeth Barrett Browning reminds us in her poem, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unawares. What we find, therefore, is that we have been created with minds, consciences, and imaginations with these receptors in order that we might perceive and embrace truth, goodness, and beauty 
transcendentals, eternal realities. And so Paul commands us in Philippians 4 verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Right here, Paul adapts a typical Stoic list of virtues to summarize the eternal realities, the transcendentals upon which we are to meditate. Paul commands us to meditate on that which is true, truth, on that which is noble, just, pure, and virtuous, goodness, and on what is lovely and praiseworthy, beauty. We are to meditate on these things because God himself is revealed in these things. So what have we learned? We have learned that God created us in his image and that he has redeemed us in Christ, that he gave us minds that we might embrace truth, consciences that we might embrace goodness, imaginations that we might embrace beauty. And the goal of education, therefore, is to cultivate our minds, consciences, and imaginations that we might embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. For in embracing them, we come to know God himself more fully. This is what education is for. It's why we labor and work. And as we come to the table, we behold truth, goodness, and beauty on display. The truth of the gravity of our sin and the necessity of judgment for it. The goodness of God, his great love in sending his son to sacrifice himself and to redeem us from every lawless deed and beauty in the sacrifice of Jesus for us and the simplicity of his words that this is my body broken for you and this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. So let us give thanks. Our God and our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have given him to redeem us from every lawless deed. We praise you that you have created us in your image with minds, consciences, and imaginations that we might come to know you more. Amen.